Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Pull up a chair and listen in as we discuss and wrestle with some verses that proponents of eternal security use to make their case. Now, there will be some overlap here with our last episode, but also some new content as well. So I hope you can forgive a little bit of redundancy here. But we'll discuss texts that seem to imply that salvation has nothing to do with works, that we already have eternal life, that salvation is permanent, and lastly, that the Holy Spirit guarantees salvation. So this is the second half of episode 21, Conditional Salvation. And so here now is Theology Part 22, Challenging Conditional Salvation. Simply stated, the salvation doctrine, as I understand it, and as this college teaches it, salvation is a gift given by God's grace that we receive by faith and repentance, resulting in a lifestyle of obedience. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that's, that's where I'm coming from. The salvation is a gift uh, given by God's grace that we accept by faith. So it's given by God, but it's our faith that accepts it. It results in a lifestyle of obedience. However, if someone turns away from Christ, then they can become lost. So, if so this is how I wrote it. If someone turns away from following Christ, whether in a definitive moment of rejection, like, I don't believe in you, right? Like some public declaration like that. Or through a gradual turning away into sin. And I've seen that many times with people. It's very sad. Where just like over time, they just gradually slide into sin. And then after a while, they don't come to church. They don't read their Bible. They don't believe anymore. They're, they're not any longer following Christ. There is this aspect of it that is a gift. You cannot earn a gift, right? Otherwise, it's not a gift, it's a paycheck. So it's a gift that you receive by faith and repentance. But that repentance includes, all right, I'm going to change my lifestyle now. So salvation should result in obedience in your life. But if you then turn away later, then you've gone back on your salvation. Now, as far as texts uh, supporting this go, I'm just going to list a bunch out for you here. Matthew 7, 21 is where Jesus says, Many will come to me on the last day and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do all these miracles? And he will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity or lawlessness. I never knew you. So that's Matthew 7, 21. People who, who actually had cast out demons in the name of Jesus and who confess him as Lord, Lord, and he says, I don't know you. That's telling me that it's possible to believe in Jesus and yet to be re rejected by Jesus. Because according to Jesus, those who do the will of my Father, those are the ones who will enter. So you have the faith, but not the obedience. Sorry, on the day of judgment, that's not going to work. Romans 11 is the one where there's the olive tree of faith. If you've ever read that, um, I'm not going to really go over all these, but um, then you have 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, where uh, that, that was really good and super short. This one says, 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So I think like that's a really strong one, because he says, you know, you're going to be saved if you hold fast. So perseverance is required. All right, so uh, let's talk about difficult texts. I found a, a website. A lot of times this is how, how we can do things these days. You find a website of somebody that has the other view than you, and then you can really get a quick, easy way to find all of the verses that they would use. Um, and so that's what I did for this. I mean, I already knew a couple, but let's work our way through. All right, John 3.16. Well, you probably don't need to go there, do you? <laughs> Who, who's ready to read that one? The world gave the only but not Right. So in this, in this text, somebody would say, in order to have eternal life, all you need to do is believe. There's a lot of people that believe that. I would even say there are millions of people that believe that on this planet right now. So how would you, how would you deal with that if somebody was bringing up John 3.16 yeah. as evidence that... <laughs> right, right. Well, you're, what you're doing there is looking at another verse to combat it. How would you explain John 3.16 better? Like, how would you adjust what they said? Because what they said was all... Eternal life only depends on believing. That's what they just said. So what, what, what would you say? Well, center on the word believe and just try to explain, like, believe not just ab in an abstract way, but like it really impacts your life. Like, you believe it and so you live it out. Right, right, right. Yeah. And for that, you could go to James. You know, like, once you said that, okay, well, believing also implies it changes your life. After all, doesn't James say, faith without works is dead? I, I should mention this. I wanted you to, to read the Restorationist Manifesto, not because like, I'm uh, desperate to get you to read something I wrote, although I did put a lot of work into that. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted you to read that because it articulates a philosophy towards truth and towards doctrinal synthesis, as it's called, where you're building together a doctrine and uh, also comparing competing doctrines, all right? So we want to be able to work everything together. That's the task of theology, as I understand it. Theology, building a doctrine, is taking into consideration all of the data in the Bible and trying to put together an understanding of that that, that doesn't have casualties of war. You know what I mean? Like, you don't, you don't like put together a doctrine and be like, yeah, I guess we just got to get rid of the Gospel of John here. But other than that, we're fine. What do you mean other than that? Like, change your doctrine if it doesn't embrace all of Scripture. And in the end, there, there might be some issues where you say, you know what? On this issue, I don't know. I know the Bible is right. I just don't know if, if I have a good understanding of this right now or what, what, on whatever subject we're talking about. And that's okay. That's okay to not, to not know everything. you got to get the gospel right. That's central. That's like the core of everything. And you've and you got to know how to follow Jesus, tell the truth, these kinds of like basic things. But when it comes to like understanding all mysteries, okay, we're here, right? We want to understand them, but it's not the end of the world if you don't have everything figured out. If you're anything like me, you want to have everything figured out. 
right? But it's, you gotta lighten up, you know, it's okay. If there's something that's troubling you, we all have things troubling us. All right, so that's John 3.16. Here's another point, verse 36. Take a look at that one in John. Uh, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So, I find that fascinating. Because that's right in the same chapter. And in the, it's a parallel construction. In one it says the one who believes, and the other it says the one who does not obey. So it's sort of equating believing and obeying, which gives us insight into how the Gospel of John uses the word believe. He assumes that you obey if you believe, just like Dan was saying earlier. But 36 can be very helpful in explaining that kind of thing. Another text that people will bring up is Ephesians 2.8. In Ephesians 2.8 says, uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What would you say on that one in response? If somebody said, well, I don't, I don't need to have works. Salvation has nothing to do with works. I just need to have faith. And I believe Jesus died for my sins. And I live however I want. So how would you resolve that seeming contradiction to this? It's not your works that provide your faith. It's not by working hard that your faith comes. It's not through your hard works that you have faith. Or through your hard works that you're saved. It's through the faith. But you can't have one without the other. So you would say to somebody that says, All right, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe in the kingdom. I believe God raised him from the dead. I believe in the Bible. I believe all of it. I just live however I want because I'm saved. If I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. You would say back to that kind of person, you don't really believe. I can say you think that is true, but you don't believe in such a way that changes your life. Because you, you said before, faith has works. Yeah. So you would have to say to that person, you don't really have faith you because don't you don't have, have works. You don't have faith on a degree that's meaningful. Okay. Would it be fair to change the word and use the word with them? Faithfulness. We're saved by our not not by our faithfulness, but you must be faithful. Yeah, I don't know if that's how I would go. I mean, I think Josiah is right. They're, these are difficult conversations to have with people. I'm not shying away from that. I think this person really doesn't believe. They think they believe, maybe. But, I mean, if they really believed, if they really thought that, that God had saved them from sin, they would not continue in sin, right? I mean, why are you going to be continue in something if you've been saved from it? It doesn't make any sense. I'm not saying, you know, I'm preaching a doctrine of perfectionism here, but I am, I am saying that there is, there is a seriousness, recognizing the seriousness of sin. When it comes to salvation, what I think really helps is to recognize that there are three tenses in English, right? So we have the, the past tense. We have the present tense, and we have the future tense. It helps to sort of clarify where we're at with each of these. So if, if we're in the past tense, we would use the word saved. That's a past tense word. If we're in the present tense, we would use the term being saved, in the process of being saved. And the future is will be saved, right? And the Bible uses all three of these. It does. It uses all three of these. Ephesians 2.8 is one of these that talks about salvation in the past tense. And it's true. 
So Ephesians 2.8 is as true a verse as you find anywhere in the Bible. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You've been saved through faith. Now, that is true. The way you got saved, the way you got your sins forgiven was through faith alone. It wasn't because of any, any work you did. It wasn't because you climbed a mountain. It wasn't because you obeyed before you became a Christian. You know what I mean? It was by faith alone. All right? So when it comes to salvation in the past tense, you have this faith alone idea, right? You don't do anything to earn it. God gives it to you. It's not a result of your works, lest you could boast. But then there is also a present tense salvation where you have to continue. And that's like uh, Daniel was saying, faithfulness, right? You have to continue in the faith. And there are a couple of scriptures that, that mention salvation in the present tense. And then in the future tense, this is talking about resurrection. And resurrection is when you are permanently saved. Because once you're raised from the dead, you're immortal, which means you can't die anymore. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 15 50, uh, whatever, 51, 52. It says that you are immortal. So if you understand that there are these different tenses that the Bible uses for salvation, you can, you can say, okay, yes, saved in the past tense, by faith alone. Saved in the future is... You know, once saved, always saved. Because once you're raised from the dead, you're always, you're always there. But then there's the present tense, which is our now. Whenever now happens to be for you, uh, so long as you've already been saved in the past. And for that, it is a continuance in obedience, right? So you have a lot of obedience in the present tense. That obedience is made available by that faith alone that started in the first place where God gives His grace to us, but then He continues to give us His grace and empower us through His Spirit so that we are able to obey in the present. Look at the next verse, for example, verse 10 there. Dale, could you read that for me? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Mm. God prepared beforehand that we Isn't that clear? So in verse 8, it says we've been saved through faith. Verse 9 says not a result of works. Verse 10 says... We have been created in Christ for good works. So we're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith so that now we have works. Okay, so you have faith alone so that now we have obedience or works and then ultimately resurrection. Ultimately, in the end, God's going to raise people from the dead. And you're going to be dead, so you're not going to have much to say about it. Right? Unless you're alive when, he, when Jesus comes back, you know. 2 Timothy... 1.9 is very similar to this. You could just put it right in that collection. John 3.16, Ephesians 2.8, and Titus 3.5 and 6. There's an, a, a second classification of verses, difficult verses on the subject of salvation, that say things like, we already have eternal life now. And so under this category here, we've got John 5.24, we've got 1 John 5, 11 to 13. And basically what they say is, well, I'll just read to you John 5, 24. It says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is how people roll with this. Let me just clarify. They'll say something like, all right, you have a soul. And when you get saved, your soul becomes immortalized so that even if your body dies, you continue to live. That's how they're going to understand having eternal life. 
So that's really more what you're coming against. What would you say there? Either way, it's immortal. But I think they would say it's been regenerated, so you'll have the good kind of eternal life, like eternal life in heaven. Right, right, right. So how would you come against that on this verse? Like, what would you say this verse really means? Uh, eternal life is a, is a state of a state of being that continues forever and ever. And so you have it right now, but that doesn't mean you can't lose it, right? So I, it, it's it's... It's a difficult one to try to explain. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this verse here. I, I think your explanation is good too, Josiah. It's just you, you're going to have to bring them into your way of thinking about resurrection and the age to come. Yeah. And don't this take kind of depends on who you're talking to? Oh, yeah. Because if you're talking to people who are, you're just trying to get them saved, have, has no prior knowledge of the Bible, period. Yeah. And we're talking a little bit more theological here yeah you, you you have to go you have to kind of i'm gonna use this word dummy that down a little bit because most like i might well okay if i believe in him i get eternal life right so that means i get to live right here forever never 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 right right no, right it right does not mean that yeah. so you have it depends on to me how yeah look at it. any other thoughts here jumped back out at me was whoever hears my word and believes him i think you could say well and there's no way Jesus is or John is saying um, like believing is a one-time momentary thing it's believing him and continuing to believe him yeah anybody uh, take a peek at verse 28 there verse 28 I think is good for clarity because it says that uh, 20, 28 says all, an hour is coming when all in the tombs will hear his voice and then verse 29 they will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment there. So for Jesus, eternal life and resurrection are like talking about the same thing, really. So you can say you have it, but it's really a promise. It's not the actual thing yet. And it's very helpful to, to recognize the, the phrase, and you probably learn this in other classes, but the phrase eternal life is really, it's really the word age-ish life. We don't have an adjective for the word age in English. We just don't. I just use ish there. So it's age-ish life. That's what it actually says in the Greek. Zoe aeonion. Aeonion is the adjective for age. But I don't, I don't think we have anything. Uh, like that. So that, that typically comes in as eternal, right? But uh, it's not really, it's not really eternal. It's not really the word that means like never ending or anything like that. It's a word that means age. We would kind of like clarify it a bit by saying life in the age. So instead of, because there's no word age-ish. So life in the age. And it's not this age, it's the next age. So the full way of explaining it all is life in the age to come. So eternal life is really ageish life, which is life in the age to come. And if you say that, then it's easy, right? If you believe in him who sent me, you have life in the age to come. That's obviously a promise. It's obviously not a present reality. It's like saying you have a vacation to the Caribbean. If you go to this timeshare meeting, you will have a vacation in the Caribbean. And then you go to this stupid timeshare meeting, they go on for two hours, and they try to sell you stuff, and you say no a million times, then they give you the tickets 
for the vacation to the Caribbean. You come out of the meeting, Kyle says to Katie Beth, he says, you won't believe what happened. And she says, what happened? And he says, I have a vacation to the Caribbean. You know what I mean? But you don't really, ha you don't really have it like it's still a month in the future. You know what I mean? But we talk like that, right? So I think that's what's going on here. Jesus isn't defying resurrection. He's got resurrection right there. He's just, he's just talking about it in a very confident way as if, he, if, as if it's already a present reality. That helps, right? You have a plane ticket. You have a hotel reservation. Everything is set to go. But it's still a future reality. You haven't experienced the vacation yet. You have the plane ticket. You have the hotel reservation. You have the car rental. Maybe you start working on your tan. I don't know. Whatever you do to get ready to go to the Caribbean, you bought some nice new sunglasses. All right, then we have a classification, this third classification, which is uh, verses that seem to say that salvation is permanent. And uh, for that, we've got a few. We've got John 10, 27 to 29. We've got uh, Romans 8, 38 to 39. And John 11, 25 to 26. And uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10, I believed it once and then I've got a life that'll never end. Okay, um, then we've got 11, 29, 1 Peter 1, 23. Uh, we're not going to have time to go through all these. We'll probably just like treat these all together as one. Um, so this one in John is where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The one in Romans 8 is where the Apostle Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he goes on and he's like, neither angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor depth, nor height, nor anything else. All creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. And so between these first two texts, we get this impression that no one's going to snatch us out of Christ's hand. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Therefore, you can't lose your salvation. What would you say on that one? Accept yourself. Yeah, that's the one thing that's missing. Yourself. Yourself is not mentioned in the first one with the shepherd. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Look, think about a sheep. And a, and a shepherd, right? Sheep are like told what to do. <laughs> but in the analogy, we're like the sheep, right? So we, are, you know, if a sheep decides, hey, I'm out of here, and a sheep sneaks out and is gone, then, yeah, nobody snatched a sheep out of Jesus' hand as the shepherd's hand. But the sheep is still not there anymore because the sheep decided to go on a vacation to the Caribbean. Um, but... Um, and the other one, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's true. That's true. But if we turn away, the love of God is not going to benefit us very much, is it? Think about Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' sheep. He was there with him. He's one of the twelve. He, he believed in him. And then Judas went a different direction. He followed Jesus. And yet, following Jesus wasn't enough because he turned away at some point. We have to recognize the role of our own choice in the matter. Otherwise, God forces you to stay saved even if you don't want to be. I think that's probably one of our most powerful points on this subject. 
yeah, so Jesus was going to protect your salvation so long as you're connected with him. I don't really like that one. God forces me to... Well, I don't really like where you end up going with that one. Because then you, you're down the rabbit hole Calvinism. Mm-hmm. You're like one step away. Yeah. Have you ever met somebody that turned away from the faith? If you hold to a strong eternal security doctrine, which most Christians hold, by the way, if you hold to that position, then not only are you going to have all the verses I showed to you at the very beginning as difficult texts, so those are now going to be your difficult texts. It's worse, believe me. Um, You also have to say that person was never saved in the first place. Because if they fell away, by definition, they were never really a Christian because you can't fall away. That's one of the beliefs. Which ends, you end up with all these ridiculous scenarios where you're saying, oh, they weren't really a Christian in the first place. What do you mean they weren't a Christian? <laughs> you know, I've met people and they were Christians and then they, then they fell away. You know, and, and I've even met one that fell away and then they came back. That's happened before. What were you going to say? Uh, just like when people say that, like, well, they were never really a Christian. It's like, well, I don't even then know what, what we're talking about anymore in terms of being a Christian because he did all the things that we that we think being a Christian is, so... So Christian's a, uh, not definite until you die. So once you're dead... Right, right, right. And yeah, he really was a Christian, because he didn't change. Right. I think the Lord, Lord one is no applicable. Like, if you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I say, mm-hmm. and, you know, with that, maybe... Yeah. Yeah, I think the word Lord is very useful. Any of the verses that I listed in the beginning are going to be useful in explaining this. The, the point is, though, you can't hold to uh, honest interpretation of Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus says, depart from me, uh, I never knew you, kind of thing, and then also hold to Romans 8 at the same time that says nothing can separate you, and if you interpret that as, no matter what I do, I'm still going to be saved. You know what I mean? Like, the whole idea of theology is, is to have a robust enough belief and understanding that the difficult verses work together with the supporting verses. That's our goal on all these here. 1 Peter 1.23 is of note because it's a born-again verse, and it says that we have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And sometimes people will look at those born-again verses and they will say, well, if you're born again, then God is your Father. You might be a bad son, Kyle. But no matter how bad you are, even if your parents disown you, you're still their son, biologically, right? There's nothing you can do to not be their son. They might not like you, they might not talk to you, you might be in jail, you might live in Antarctica in an igloo with penguins, but you're still their son, right? So people will say, well, if I'm born again and I have this incorruptible seed and I'm a, this like descendant, then no matter what I do, I'm still his son or his daughter. What's the problem with that? Just because you're in one state doesn't mean it can't change. Yeah, I would say that you're over-literalizing what the Scripture's saying here. I mean, when it says born again, it's not, it's not saying you're biologically born again. It, it's a spiritual reality, and it's an analogy. It's an analogy. It's not, you're not supposed to like go crazy and say, oh, that means I also have 24 spiritual chromosomes or however many how many chromosomes you have 23 from each or whatever so like now i have an extra 23 spiritual chromosomes what you're going too far 
take it back a, a, a step and get what the point is. The point of the verse is you've got a new life. You're born again. You have a new life. And that new life is not through a seed that perishes. It's through the gospel message, through the word that was preached. So it doesn't mean that you are imperishable. It means that the gospel, I mean, you, as you get older, you, you perish, you know, and then eventually when you die, you really perish fast, uh, just like a banana left out too long. So this is nothing to do with biology. This is, just, this is just like saying you have a new life as a result of believing in the seed. All right, then there's one last classification of text on this subject before you take your quiz here, and that is the Holy Spirit guarantees salvation. There are a few verses under this one. They're all very similar, so I just can cover them all at once with you. And um, they all say something like, the Spirit was given as a pledge of your inheritance. I'll just read it to you. This is Ephesians 1.13. In Him also you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, that you have that idea of being sealed. The 2 Corinthians text says that the Spirit was given in our hearts as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, the Spirit which is given as a guarantee. Each of these texts teaches that the Spirit is a down payment, a pledge, a guarantee. And the best text that explains this is from Genesis. And I love it because it's sort of like putting a good spin on a very bizarre and morally dubious incident. And that is where Judah and Tamar, we would call it today, hooked up. All right. So Judah, if you recall, <laughs> Judah was Tamar's. Or at least one of them did it unintentionally. Uh, well, he was still visiting a prostitute, bro. Right. I mean, he, well, he didn't know it was Tamar, but it's not like he's innocent, you know? Like, I, I was just going for a uh, regular prostitute, not my daughter-in-law. All right, so anyhow, the, the, scene, the scene is like this. Judah is uh, going to visit a prostitute, and he, it's his daughter-in-law disguised, and he doesn't recognize her. And she is actually a widow at this point. Her husband had died, and he had a son that he didn't want to give her to. And so she's stuck in this limbo zone, has to live in his house, has to wear widow clothes, is very limited in what she can do, doesn't have any kids yet of her own, future's not looking very bright, she dresses up like a prostitute, she takes matters into her own hands, and she is negotiating with her father-in-law the price for prostitution. And uh, he says, come, this is Genesis 38, come, uh, let me come into you. Very direct kind of question there. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? Then this is verse 17. He says, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So I guess that's what you paid in the old days, a young goat. And she said, this is a good businesswoman. She said, she said, if you will give me a pledge until you send it. So he's like, look, I'm going to give you a young goat. And she looks at him. He, she doesn't, he doesn't have a young goat. Where's the young goat? I don't see a young goat. She says, what's the pledge? You're going to give me a pledge? How do I know you're really going to give me the young goat? You know, she, she, he wants services rendered. She wants payment. It's a reciprocity situation here. And he says, what pledge shall I give you? This word pledge in the Greek is the same word as the guarantee word for the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, in Corinthians. 
It's the same exact word. It's a down payment word. It's a guarantee. What guarantee will you give me? And so they settle on something. He says, well, what pledge shall I give you? She, she asks about a pledge. He's like, well, what do you want? And she says, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. He's like, okay. So he gives them to her. And then they do the deed. Later on, he sends a servant to bring the young goat. They can't find her. This, the other stuff comes in the story later, as, as those of you who have read it know. But that's not really the point. The point is that this is how a pledge works. It's, it's a down payment. And the simple fact is, historically, she never got the young goat. She never did get the young goat. You know why? Because she took off the prostitution clothes. She went back home, probably to the same house he was living in. Uh, she went the back way. Uh, well, maybe he went the back way. She went the front way. Either way, she never got the young goat. So she had a guarantee, but she still never got the young goat. So it is with us. You can have the guarantee from God's end of what he's going to do, sealing us with the Spirit, but that doesn't mean we're going to do what we need to do, stay faithful. Does that make sense? So the Spirit, is it refers to what God's doing, not to what we're doing. We've got to show up to the, the last day in some sort of uh, condition that is persevering. Well, and it's much like a house. You know, if you give a down payment to a bank, they're like, we're going to let you stay here. But if you stop paying... Yeah, you stop paying that mortgage, uh-oh. You're not going to be living there much longer. Well, that's it for this episode. If you... I haven't been saying this, but it certainly is the case that if you are interested in sitting in a class with me or other qualified biblical professors from the Atlanta Bible College, uh, I, I encourage you to check out AtlantaBibleCollege.com. See what classes they're offering. Um, I, I come down twice a year to Georgia and teach a week-long intensive, and it would be great to, to meet up with some of you there, or maybe you would, would prefer to do some distance learning classes that they have available, but uh, you can get all that information at AtlantaBibleCollege.com and contact the registrar and see what is planned for the upcoming semester. I know that right now it's 2019, the summer of 2019. I am scheduled to go down there in late September, the last week of September, first week of October, to teach basic Bible doctrine and apologetics. So, if you want more information about that, go to the Bible College website. It would be great to see you in class. Also, I just wanted to read out a comment that we just got in from Interview 40, How Much Does Truth Matter with Chuck Whitlock. This is by Heather Kay, who writes, About two years ago, I began asking questions as a homeschool mom about our culture's fascination with the Greeks. Initially, I was just looking into the field of education and specifically into history curriculums. I never expected my initial inquiries to lead me into foundational theologies of the church. I find that there are a few, if any, that are interested in following me down this road of inquiry, and so I find myself asking this exact question, does the truth really matter? I don't want to cause any unnecessary stir, but if it matters, I need to say something. But how? How do I convey the truth without blasting everyone out of the water? Thank you, Chuck, for taking the time to disseminate your thoughts. I was encouraged to hear that I can share what I have learned about the truth in love. I, too, have sort of put feelers out to see if others are interested in hearing more. Too many times my comments fall on deaf ears. 
but I keep praying that God will bring people into our lives locally with whom we can have fellowship. Going this alone is very isolating. Indeed it is, Heather. And I uh, just want to encourage you in your faith and also let you know that it's it's really good for us to get together, especially those of us who don't live near other fellowships. And that's one of the main reasons why we have, we, we have this event called Converge this year in August, August 2nd to the 4th. Uh, you can get more information at convergefest.com. Uh, we are now getting a lot of people registering for this event. People are signing up from all over the United States and from a number of different groups as well as isolated folks. So this is really the place to be this summer if you can make it. It's uh, right outside of Cleveland, Ohio at the uh, college campus known as Hiram College. We're renting it out. Uh, prices are very inexpensive. Uh, at the time of this recording, we have available available accommodations, including food and everything all-inclusive for $129, $129 for an entire weekend. That's two nights, all your meals, and we're even getting you a little converged souvenir keychain. So so I don't know how you could possibly resist coming. I, I'm going to be there. Dale Tuggy is going to be there. Seth Ross, my father, Vince Finnegan, John Shaneheit, Keegan Chandler, Jerry Weirwill. Uh, we're going to have a lot of different Bible teachings, workshops. We've got Rebecca Doxis coming, and she's coordinating the children's program. She's one of the most revered and top-notch children's educators that I've ever met, and uh, she does a great job. So we're, we're looking at having a phenomenal weekend together. Registration is still open, but it's only going to be open for a little while longer. I, I think our... I think sometime in the middle of this month, in the middle of July, it's going to be closing. So look, if you've been thinking about it, sign up now. Don't don't even just hit pause right now. Just go ahead and hit pause. Go to convergefest.com. Sign up. And even if you don't know anybody that I just listed off or you've never met me or any, any of the interviews I've done on this podcast, it doesn't matter. This is the family of God. Come. We'll welcome you. And we'd love to meet you. Whether you come by yourself or come with a group, whether you fly or take a train or a bus or you drive, come to Converge 2019 and let's converge together and have a weekend of great encouragement and joy. Are you with me? All right, so that's ConvergeFest.com. Please sign up. Thanks, everybody, for, for listening. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.